Hello and welcome to the One World Podcast with me, Joe Haddo. Today I'm joined by a bomb maker, a scholar, and a man who not only rubbed shoulders with the masterminds of the 9-11 attack, but swore allegiance to Osama bin Laden. Eamon Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming in and, and welcome to the One World Boardroom. It's a pretty impressive place, isn't it? Indeed it is. I mean, with all the books on the shelves <laughs> and everything. <laughs> it's nice looking around knowing you're in pretty good company published here. Absolutely. Uh, I feel honoured and privileged already. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this book then, Nine Lives. It's full of unbelievable stories, really, and, and yet it's all true. How did this book come about, first of all? Because not many spies get to actually publish their story. Well... I always intended that after I uh, had my identity um, compromised in uh, 2006, that I would be uh, going into a life of obscurity and basically that's it. Like you know, I will live happily ever after and no need to worry about all of this. Um, but, you know, life, you know, uh, could take always different turns. In a sense, you know, when I left you know, the employment of MI6, I went into banking, you know, which is strange, I know. But, you know, you you just exchange one form of terrorism to another. You know, banking is a form of terrorism, I would say, weapons of math destruction. <laughs> um, and I was enjoying my life there. I was enjoying the fact that I was working for a bank, uh, one of the global banks, and I was doing a lot of work on um, counterterrorism, finance, money laundering, um, and corruption, uh, you know, in certain parts of the world. It, it, but, but at some point, there was a turning point really in 2013 when in that year, uh, first in May 2013, my cousin, my 20-year-old cousin was killed in Syria fighting for Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda's uh, branch in Syria. And then... You know, things even went more south when my nephew went to Syria to fight there. He was only 19, and I remember I was pleading with him not to go and join ISIS. He wanted to join ISIS, actually, at that time when ISIS just started to emerge in uh, Syria. And uh, even though he, you know, he heard my pleas and he went uh, to join Ahrar al-Sham, which was a more moderate uh, rebel group, if you can call them this way. But nonetheless, uh, by September that year he was killed also there and this is when I saw that the entire conflict is uh, turning into yet another uh, theater where groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are bringing so many people so many young people from across the Muslim world and throwing them into the fire of this conflict and that's when I realized, you know, where are the role models that would tell people that, well, there is another path, there is another way. Why is it that only the only cool people in the block basically are those who are of ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Why there isn't basically uh, another path? And that's when I started to become more and more active in the fields of counter-extremism, uh, trying to educate people about the dangers of these groups. But then People always ask you, like, I mean, you're just one of the analysts. What are your qualifications in order to talk about Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, uh, you know, the dangers of radicalization? Do you know any of this? And, uh, you know, and how, how do you tell them, basically, that you yourself were a member of Al-Qaeda for many years and then you became a spy for the West, you know, for even more years after that? 
uh, and that you spend 12 years of your, of your life with these people, not just only, you know, um, uh, as a comrade, but sometimes as an instructor, as, uh, you know, sometimes a part-time imam, and sometimes as a fellow operative, I fought with, alongside them, I bled alongside them, I buried some of them in the ground myself. So I should know something or two about these people, and therefore um, you, you, you could start at least educating people about the fact that don't do it. Don't listen to them. So how can you tell people not to listen to them when people basically don't know who you are? Um, and it became personal, especially after losing two young relatives like that, especially my nephew Ibrahim, who was only 19 at that time. Mm -hmm. um, that's when I remember I did a, a small piece on ISIS finances for the BBC, and they described him basically as someone who you know, was at some point basically in the employment of the uh, UK intelligence services. And that's when uh, both uh, my co-authors now, uh, Paul Cruikshank and uh, Tim Lister, um, you know, more or less uh, their attention focused on me a little bit. And so they, you know, Paul invited me to uh, coffee to talk to me about the possibility of writing a book. Now, I was going there actually to tell him, sorry, I'm not going to do it. I have no intention of writing a book. But within half an hour, I agreed because the man was just charming. <laughs> and he really convinced me. And, and here it is in front of us now. And uh, you must be proud that you've done it now and pleased with its reception. It took three years and hundreds of hours of sitting down, you know, right, recording sessions, going over details. And the brilliant thing about both Paul and Tim that every time basically I talk about a period of my life, they will then take it, dissect it, and cross-reference it with uh, other events happening, with uh, court records, uh, interrogation logs, with press releases, in even the most obscure of press releases from you know uh, small countries around the world in order basically just to uh, join the dots. Mm. So we ended up with an autobiography that have almost 300 footnotes, which is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there are a, a lot of footnotes, I noticed, throughout. Well, let's go back then to when you were a young Muslim and you found yourself wanting to defend your faith. Tell us about those early years and how you got involved with jihad and, with, and then latterly, you know, with al-Qaeda. The first instance where I felt that the jihad was just too close to us basically was in 1992 when my math teacher, um, his name was Osama Mansouri actually, um, his father was a brigadier general in the Ministry of Interior in Saudi Arabia, his uncle was the Minister of Transportation, so he came from an affluent family, yet you couldn't detect this about him, he was such a down-to-earth, very you know, good, decent teacher. Um, Come the following semester, um, we heard the news basically that he went with a member of the Bahraini royal family to Bosnia to fight there and he was killed. So suddenly a war 5,000 kilometers away was so ever present in that empty you know, uh, teacher's chair in our classroom. Mm. And that's what got me even more interested in what's happening in Bosnia, why is it the case, and now... You need to understand that while the footage that were broadcasting around the world of the Bosnian conflict carried different meanings to different countries, but for us it was even more so because uh, 
the narrative was monopolized by the Islamists in Saudi Arabia, who presented this conflict as yet another chapter in the Crusades against Islam, and that this is a conspiracy by Europeans aiding the Serbs to get rid of the last remnants of the Ottoman rule in uh, Europe, and that that's it, the largest Muslim population need to be not just only isolated and not just only uh, persecuted, but also put down so there is no possibility of a country that is, uh, you know, have a Muslim majority in Europe. That's what we were told. And we were told it's a crusade. So being told that, being fed that, you know, it started to, you know, for me, it's, you know, it started to show how the war in Bosnia started, you know, presented the war as a crusade, presented that there is a now a move towards a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. So I think within two years, from 92 until 94, I was just ready to go, except I didn't know it. Mm. You know, the trigger came in October of 94, when a childhood friend of mine, even though he was uh, three years my senior, um, his brother told me that you should go and say goodbye to Khalid. Uh, his name was Khalid because Khalid is leaving to Bosnia. And on my way to his home to say goodbye, I formulated my plan immediately. You know, he is going. Why not me? You know, why is it that Khalid feel the sense that he need to go? And I, you know, why shouldn't I feel the same sense of obligation of duty? By the time I got to his door, I knocked on the door and I told him, well, look, your brother told me what, you know, what you're up to. Uh, how many of you are going? He said, we are three. I said, you will be a company of four. Um, and he said, why? Do you know anyone else who's you know, wanting to go with us? And I said, how dim could you be? It's me, Dumbo. Okay, I'm the one like, I mean, who will uh, go with you. And he said, oh, no, for God's sake, amen. Like, I mean, you are only 16. How could I you know, even envisage taking you with me? You know, we're going to the jihad in Bosnia where it is a war, and war is ugly. It's not picnic. People die. People lose limbs. Um, do you really think that the jihad needs you there? I said, no, of course not. I, you know, the jihad doesn't need me there, but I need it. And I think that answer changed his mind. He thought, basically, that it, you know, for me it wasn't about thrill-seeking or anything. I think it was more about seeking a life bigger than the life I was living. You know, and I told him, yes, I know it might, uh, you know, end up in my death, you know, but that death would be martyrdom. And between you and me, I would rather live a life with a bigger purpose, uh, even if it's short, than living a long life with no purpose at all. So take me with you. And he took me. And when you were there as a 16-year-old, as a which is obviously incredibly young, really, you saw some pretty terrible things and I imagine were exposed to stuff that really no one, let alone anyone in, in their teens, should have been exposed to? Well, I didn't realize this until I was there. And, you know, Khalid's words were really ever-present in my mind when we were driving uh, across the border from Croatia into Bosnia and uh, looking at the amount of uh, destruction, basically, we saw around. Um, that's when I was more or less thinking of his words that, yes, you know, uh, war wasn't a picnic. And then, you know, you start to hear about the stories. You start to, you start to hear about what's happening. And then you visit, you know, the sites of 
mass killings and mass murder you see the uh, in the blood stained walls of mosques and schools uh, you see the places where you know for certain that people were burnt alive and that's you know it does bring the war back more to focus in my mind but it actually reinforces you know my decision to come to Bosnia and to fight it reinforces you know, my will and determination to actually see this project through at that time. Would you say that back then the Quran was being used to promote sort of evil and used as a propaganda tool in the wrong sense? Well, if you look at the Quran, the Quran is a vehicle, just like any other vehicle, basically. I mean, you could either use it for good or evil. Um, you could use your car to drive your pregnant wife to uh, the hospital or to drop your daughter to the school. Or you could use the car to uh, run over pedestrians, kill them, maim them, and use it as a weapon uh, for murder. Um, so the question is, how do you use the Quran? How do you see the Quran? Do you see the Quran as justification for uh, building a modern, um, uh, just society? Or do you see the Quran basically as a justification for war in order to establish a totalitarian authority on earth? I think... It could be either way. And for us at the time, basically, uh, I, in Bosnia, the Quran felt, you know, uh, you know felt for us like as if, as, as if it was the guiding principle for us in that war because it was a war to fight against injustice. You see, many people mistake jihad as, um, as a holy war against the infidels. And that's not true. It's, this is not how what I understood jihad to be. Jihad is an instrument to fight against injustice, whether that injustice was done by Muslims or non-Muslims alike. So you could be fighting a jihad against you know, a totalitarian authority that is you know, basically uh, fighting in the name of Islam. You could fight a jihad against the Taliban. You could fight a jihad against ISIS. Uh, remember, it was the Grand Mufti, or the, you know, the Grand Cleric of Najaf in Iraq, basically, who declared jihad against ISIS. Um, so while so so both sides were shouting Allahu Akbar at each other, both sides basically were declaring jihad against each other. It's the same thing in Afghanistan when I was uh, there in later years. You know the Northern Alliance were you know shouting Allahu Akbar and waging jihad against the Taliban, and the Taliban were waging jihad back again at them. So you know uh, at the end of the day, the Quran is just a vehicle. You could use it basically for good or evil. Tell us about when you first met. Osama bin Laden then? After Bosnia, I ended up somehow in Afghanistan because I wanted to um, gain more training. And I realized basically that, the, you know, in order to be placed in more positions of danger, let's put it this way, and to be closer to action, you have to have more useful skills. Uh, you know, being a, you know, a bookish, nerdy, you know, boy, like, you know, I mean, that doesn't, you know, put you so much, uh, you know, into uh, harm's way as uh, it would have been if my military training was better. So I went to Afghanistan, uh, on, funny enough, like, you know, and ironically, on the advice of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who was the architect of 9-11. Uh, when he was in Bosnia, he told me and many of my other comrades, go to Afghanistan, get training, get ready. The conflict is only going to intensify from now on. And he was right. So when I arrived in Afghanistan, just months after that, Bin Laden himself arrived back from Sudan. So when Bin Laden arrived in Sudan, I, remember, I still remember that 
you know, that was oh, uh, July of uh, 1996, a group of us, um, Saudis, uh, basically mainly uh, about 14, um, decided that you know, we will uh, respond to the invitation of some members of Al-Qaeda who were with Bin Laden in a compound just only about 45 minutes drive away. And that compound was owned by one of the Afghan warlords who stayed neutral throughout the war between the Taliban and the other uh, factions. So when we arrived, it's like, you know, looking at Bin Laden and his uh, followers and uh, the members of his organizations, they looked like refugees. Like, they didn't look like anything threatening uh, against the West. They were disorganized. They were just arriving back from Sudan setting up a shop in Afghanistan and they were they themselves didn't know what to do like you know they were just arriving and you know sorting out everything and when we saw Bin Laden he was only just nine days from his arrival in Sudan and from Sudan to Afghanistan and yet he was still full of defiance talking about grand plans to expel the Americans out of the Middle East uh, about liberating Jerusalem about uh, you know bringing down the house of Saud you know the royal family of Saudi Arabia um, and I think that for, for us, you know, the 14 who went to visit him, we felt that there is a little bit of uh, grandiose naivety here. Uh, let's put it this way. And that he was just dreaming way above his station. Um, and that was our impression. And, uh, you know, there is a myth among many people that all the jihadists in Afghanistan were members of Al-Qaeda. No, only one third of the jihadists in Afghanistan were member of, members of Al-Qaeda. The rest basically, like, you know, we just belong to uh, not different factions, but we are more independent, let's put it this way. So, nothing. Then for a year, uh, and a detour to the Philippines, uh, as, far as, I'm, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I uh, ended up meeting the head of Bin Laden's bodyguard in August of 1997. Uh, his name was Hamza al-Ghamdi, and what a charming man he was. Um, he took me around Jalalabad, talking to me about uh, how it is important for young people from the Gulf like me to join uh, Al-Qaeda, to sworn allegiance to Osama bin Laden, because he is the only one who gets it. He's the only one, basically, who's planning to uh, liberate the Arabian Peninsula, Levantine regions like Jerusalem, you know, from the... Uh, what he calls it basically the uh, Zionist Crusader Alliance um, and uh, to bring about an Islamic caliphate um, and in order, he knew me somehow basically, in order to really get me to join Al-Qaeda he used a lot of intellectual, theological and ideological seduction let's put it this way to bring me into the fold and he used uh, eschatology, the Islamic, uh, you know, theological branch of prophecies, you know, um, to persuade me that this is all preordained by God long time ago, and this is a conflict that we are doing in order to fulfill um, uh, God's um, uh, plans uh, on earth. It's like we are being the you know, instruments of God's, you know, promise, and therefore, basically, we have to bring about this promise. Who will do it then? Martians, you know, from space? So, I was, in the end, convinced that it was the right thing to do, and I told him so, and then he arranged for me to travel all the way to Kandahar, um, and uh, there I sat with Sam bin Laden. Uh, he was, you know, as tall as they, you know, uh, everyone described, and seeing him, basically, this time, he looked 
you know let's put it this way more you know he looked you know more tidy <laughs> than the last time i saw him a year earlier uh, and the surrounding was far more impressive it was the tarnak farms uh, the headquarters of al qaeda the new one near jalalabad uh, sorry near qandahar airport um so now he looks more impressive uh, he was more relaxed uh, he wasn't as disheveled and just you know i won't say jet lagged but i would say basically i mean he wasn't just uh, being chased away from another country he's now uh, his power base in afghanistan is firmly established so i uh, you know, greeted him and he greeted me and then he launched into after welcoming me he launched into telling me how important how crucial uh, this project was al-qaeda's project and how i'm going giving my allegiance to this project because it's going to be a intergenerational war is going to last uh, two or three generations and uh, none of us might not see the end of it uh, but we have to start somewhere so then he extended his hand you know for me to shake it um, and then to recite the oath of uh, allegiance to him which was already given to me uh, beforehand so I had to you know keep memorizing it it was only a few sentences basically um, where you swear to fight alongside him against anyone he fights against and to make peace alongside him again you know with uh, anyone who he makes peace with and to obey him in all matters and to obey him in all times whether in times of hardship or in times of ease and that God is my witness and that's it and then I became a member of Al-Qaeda It's just amazing really to think think about that now because there must have been a time when and, and you talk about it in the book the time where you just thought this is not for me and this is not what I do believe in and what I'm fighting for but how long between swearing your allegiance and that light bulb moment that I'll call it how, how long a gap was there there I would say almost a year a year passed uh, you know and during that year I was assigned uh, you know by Abu Hamza Ghamdi to uh, a camp in uh, Afghanistan a small one which was even though it was small but it had a huge consequence on uh, history of the world security let's put it this way uh, it was called the Darunta camp, uh, also known as Abu Khabab camp. It was a small camp, a laboratory, which produced um, and researched uh, biological weapons, chemical weapons, as well as explosives and poisons. So being a nerd, you know, they decided that's the best place for me. And I was there. And, you know, uh, completed some uh, courses there with Abu Khabab. I remember I was... Uh, in August of 1998 in another camp uh, visiting when we heard celebratory gunfire uh, and uh, people were shouting Allahu Akbar and seems to be you know some joy I, I remember like to my I thought maybe Osama Bin Laden was visiting uh, sometime it happened and I went out with my uh, you know uh, fellow jihadists to see what's going on and uh, I, I asked what's happening everyone was saying rejoice the largest CIA station in East Africa has been raised to the ground. Um, and I was thinking, um, CIA station, I mean, it must be the CIA have definitely like in a branches there somewhere in East Africa. So I was rejoicing with them too. Um, 
luckily for me, like many other jihadists, basically, I have a radio in which basically I can listen to news. And I remember, you know, somehow the radio Kuwait was carried over the airwaves all the way to Afghanistan, and I was listening to it. And during that, uh, you know, the next few days, the details of the attack started to filter through. It wasn't a CIA station, you know, per se. It was actually the American embassy in Nairobi, as well as the American embassy in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And the attack against the embassy in uh, Nairobi killed 12 American diplomats, but ended up killing 220 innocent Kenyan civilians. Actually, like many of them were Muslims also. Wounded roughly about 5,000 people because it was such a densely populated area. 150 of them were blinded for life. So the toll of death and destruction was just far beyond you know what they were trying to achieve which is to kill american lives so the horrors of the you know the horrors and you know based on the details uh, you know were just too much for me i ended up going to uh, abu abdullah muhajir he is the uh, dean of the sharia college that al qaeda established in iraq uh, in afghanistan I went to him and I asked him, I said, uh, Sheikh Abu Abdullah, just to keep my, you know, uh, heart at peace, could you explain to me how could we justify taking so many innocent lives who had nothing to do whatsoever with our war uh, against the Americans just to get at 12 Americans? And he said to me, oh, we have the justification. The fatwa is there. Um, it's written, you know, 700 years ago. Uh, you know, you will find it in the uh, comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah is a 13th century Muslim scholar. He said, if, if you look at it, his comprehensive works, you will find that he was actually, you know, uh, listing the fatwas issued about the human shields. You know, it's called in Islam, Tatarus Fatwa. So the Tatarus Fatwa uh, gives us the right, that's what he says, to attack an enemy, even if that enemy is shielding himself by placing his installations within civilian population. Therefore, we can. Um, ironic, isn't it, that basically every time, you know, jihadists basically place themselves these days in civilian areas, and then when the, uh, you know, when the international coalition go and attack them, they shout, civilian, civilian, civilians, yet, like, you know, their own fatwa, uh, basically, seems seems to be giving the giving the justification to both the Russians and the Americans and the Brits and the French and everyone basically to attack them. But nonetheless, I thought that uh, somehow I doubted whether this fatwa really applies to our time. So I decided that I want to read uh, read it in its own original form uh, in the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah. Unfortunately, the book wasn't available in that camp. It's available. Uh, in uh, the Al-Qaeda's headquarters in Kabul. So two weeks in the past before I went to Kabul, and there I was able to have a look at the book. Now, the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah, 37 volumes, and you know, two volumes, you know, 36 and 37, are just the indexes. You know, so, so I had to go through the index, basically. And it took me hours, but then I found it. Uh, it's supposed to be in uh, volume 28. And... Open volume 28 I did. 
And to my surprise, basically, I just realized how you know, incredibly different the fatwa from the application of what happened in uh, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. The fatwa was talking actually about previous fatwas, edicts, in which the defenders of Muslim cities in Central Asia at that time like Tashkand and Samarkand and Bukhara and you know all of these uh, you know wonderful bastions of Islamic civilization were under attack by the Mongol hordes, and the Mongols at the time had the um, they had the practice of you know sacking a city, taking hundreds and hundreds of civilians as prisoners, and then using them to push the siege towers to the next city they are going to sack. So they don't have to put their own soldiers in danger, you know, use someone else basically to push the siege towers. They are expendable. So the Muslim defenders of these cities were sending urgent fatwas, you know, requests for fatwas basically, you know, to, you know, from the Muslim scholars at that time asking, are we allowed to kill these people? Because if they continue to push the siege towers towards us, you know, we will end up dead ourselves. So the fatwa came back, yes, you can, because they're already, you know, uh, regarded as martyrs because, you know, the Mongols will kill them anyway, whether, like, you know, they push the siege towers or not. Whether you kill them or not, they will end up dead anyway. So keep going. Kill them. Now, that's the fatwa, which allowed the killing of human shields. You know, in the time of war, especially when we talk about time of desperation even during war. Uh, you know, when I read it and I finished reading it, I was thinking, I can't picture uh, the American embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam pushing siege towers towards Mecca or Medina. So what was it about life and death situation that, you know, compelled Al-Qaeda to actually uh, do that? Um, so I felt so angry and so disillusioned that Al-Qaeda would twist this, you know, faith principles, let's put it this way, to the point of breaking. In fact, they broke it you know, completely. And if that's what they're willing to do right now, the question is, what would they do in the future? I felt also that the consequences of what happened is going to haunt us for many, 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 many years to come. It's like as if I had an epiphany where I saw what's going to happen 20 years ahead with everything. You know, how we're going to twist uh, the principles of the faith beyond breaking point um, and we will end up basically killing our own people, killing our own families, killing our own neighbors, killing our own security services in order to establish this, you know, not dream, but a nightmare of a caliphate. Uh, I decided that I, didn't, I don't want to be part of this. It's going to bring nothing but death and misery on the Muslim world. Um, I wanted out. How then did you come to work for MI6? having come to that realization? Well, I didn't wake up one day and um, was thinking, hooray, I'm going to be a spy. No, of course not. Um, I was thinking a lot about leaving. And I was telling myself, uh, and you know, I was telling myself basically that I have to find a way of leaving Afghanistan. And... The chance came actually in December of 1998, just three months after the East Africa bombings, when I was already scheduled to travel to Qatar 
because I needed to have a further medical checkup on my liver because the year before I had a simultaneous typhoid and malaria hitting me at the same time. Uh, it wasn't fun. Uh, they both have you know, conflicting symptoms. So you're sweating and yet shivering. You feel hot and cold at the same time. So uh, I was told to come in a year just to make sure that there is no lasting damage. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, I told my commanders at the time that I'm going for this reason. And they saw no reason to say no. So they told me, yes, of course you can. So I arrived in Qatar. And my intention was to cut all communications with my commanders and my fellow jihadists and to enroll into university and become a history teacher. Yeah, I know, it was naive. Yeah, I know, it was naive. But nonetheless, that, that was the plan, to study history, become a history teacher uh, in Qatar or elsewhere in the Gulf and completely disappear uh, you know, as far as my fellow Al-Qaeda members were concerned. But a day after I arrived in Qatar, I found myself to be the guest of the Qatari intelligence services. They brought me into their headquarters and they brought me in an office um, and it looks like an interrogation room. And there were so many of them, more, you know, about eight at least, lined up all in front of me, surrounding me almost like, you know, in a, like a semicircle. And, you know, it was a very intimidating environment. You know, lights were dim. Uh, from behind me, bright from ahead of me, I mean, all of that, and, and they were all, you know, looking at me stern, and and they were asking me rough questions about stating my name, and, you know, and they were, you know, uh, telling me that, like, you have to tell the truth, I mean, we are not kidding here, you know, we don't want the, uh, you know, the evening to become more ugly, and for me, I was just amused, I was just looking at them so amused, like, really, I'm already trained on counter-interrogations, but I'm not going to use any of this, today, I'm going to sing like a canary I'm, I'm you know i have no intention whatsoever of protecting anyone i already had enough of a qaeda basically i'm more than happy to tell you whatever you want so i they started by asking me questions you made a phone call from the uh, last year from the phone of, uh, of a well-known terrorist you know they were talking about abu zubaydah you know the famous guantanamo uh, bay resident at the moment um, and uh, he is a well-known fixer for Osama bin Laden, and you know he is his right-hand man in uh, Peshawar. And you made you know a phone call from his phone. You must be so important. You know he allowed you to do that. He doesn't allow anyone to do that. So I said to them, no, he doesn't. But I was dying at the time of malaria and typhoid. You know, like you know, so of course he couldn't take me to a phone booth. You know, I couldn't even stand. So I had to. Uh, call some friends in Doha here in Qatar in order for them to arrange for a hospital treatment for me. That's all. Ah, so you admit you know Abu Zubaydah? Of course I know Abu Zubaydah. So you admit you are his associate? Of course I'm, I'm his associate. You don't deny any of this? No, of course I don't deny any of this. What game are you playing with us? No, I don't, I'm not playing any game with you. You know, you just caught me at the right moment. You know, and they said, what right moment? And I went into an explanation about what my, was my, my mindset was, why I actually arrived here. And that's when they were just looking at each other. And then suddenly the lights was back on again. Basically, they started to relax, looking at each other. And then more friendly conversations follow. And then within a few hours, they brought some food from the, hill, from the Sheraton, actually, uh, next door. And the atmosphere was jovial. And, you know, it was so 
surreal. Like, I mean, I was, you know, th- th- you know, th- they were shaking hands with me. They were like, you know, basically, I mean, patting me on the shoulder and, you know, uh, you know, as if like, you know, basically they were long lost, lost friends. And, you know, and that remained the case for nine days. They put me in, you know, they hastily constructed a bedroom inside uh, the intelligence headquarters. They converted one of the offices basically into a bedroom. Uh, you know, with a comfortable bed and everything for me to sleep. And uh, yeah, I mean, just to show you how, you know, they were surprised, pleasantly surprised, let's put it this way. So I gave them all the information they wanted about that particular individual, uh, Abu Zubaydah. And uh, and that's when I realized why they were so interested in him, that the fact that the French intelligence um, suspect and believed that he had a crucial role to play in the 1995 uh, Paris metro bombings. Uh, which he did, unfortunately. Um, so I was more than happy to provide them with even, you know, the, you know, the, uh, because they were, they, they had no picture of him. And I said, basically, do you want to know where you find a picture of him? And they looked at me and they said, basically, if you do that, we will make sure that you are, you know, well taken care of. But tell us. I said, yeah, there is a bank account of his using his fake Saudi passport, which have his current photo. And of course, there's a photocopy of it in that bank, in that particular branch. Uh, so, because I took that photocopy of the passport with me, basically, to uh, you know, do some banking on behalf of his in Peshawar. And so they said, if your information checks, basically, and we get the photo, then uh, that's evidence of your uh, good intentions. And we will see to it that you are not uh, going to be in any harm after all. Of course, basically, they were not telling me the entire truth. But anyway... They, the French intelligence, you know, of course, uh, did make the approach, got the photocopy. Finally, they have a photo of Abu Zubaydah, which is to this day the same photo the entire world used in their media outfit. And it's a, that photo came from me, actually. Let's put it this way. I led them to that photo. And so he, uh, sorry, the, uh, you know, the officers in the Qatari intelligence on the ninth day told me that, look, we know that you want to stay in Qatar. We know that you want to... Um, be a history teacher someday and we think this is admirable uh, admirable basically is synonymous with naive here yeah. <laughs> but they said look um, Qatar at the time was a really small country I mean 250,000 people lived there that's it you will be running into your own comrades all the time and there will be no getting away from them so however what we advise you you know, with your profile within Al-Qaeda and all of that, that you need to be under the protection of a larger country, a country that can actually have authority and can protect you. So we should tell you that we could link you up either with the Americans, the French, or the British. Um, so which one you choose? So I said, does that mean basically I'll end up being spying for them? Or, you know, they said, no, 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 just debriefing, debriefing them. That's, that's, that's all, you know, you, will not, you won't have to become a spy. Just like, you know, you debrief them and then they will take care of you. They will protect you. So I said, okay, and when do I have to make that decision? So the colonel looked at his watch basically and he said, half an hour. Um, oh dear, half an hour, okay. So I thought to myself, you know, being a, a believer, being, you know, so, so I, I left Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, days and days before saying, you know, to God that I am in your hand, wherever you take me, I will go. So if this is your plan, then so be it. So I told them, OK, it's the UK. 
why the uk i said because well my you know my, my grandfather actually fought for the british in the first uh, world war in iraq uh, from 1915 and he remained beyond that even until 1926 uh, and then he worked for the uh, you know british uh, foreign office in bahrain and um, so yeah i mean i would i would say yes uh, i will go to the uk and that's exactly what happened that same night they put me on a flight straight to the uk where I was received by uh, counter-terrorism officials from both MI5 and MI6. And they greeted me nicely. They were exceptionally welcoming. And the fact that I already have very well hidden floppy disks containing the entire Al-Qaeda program on explosives, chemical weapons, uh, poisons, and biological weapons, uh, and it was already December 16, and I wasn't dressed as Santa, you know, per se, but it was Christmas coming early to them. I gave them these as a gesture of my goodwill. Um, and they accepted that and they were very happy. And that's when they told me basically that there will be a series of meetings uh, over the coming days to evaluate and that there will be more debriefings. We estimated the debriefings to last roughly uh, two months. They lasted six months because there's too much information to download. Let's put it this way. So you ended up going back over and being a double agent, essentially. And that was something, as you said, that you didn't want to do. You didn't think it was going to happen at all. So after the six months of debriefing, what did they then proffer to you as the next stage? Well... The debriefings lasted six months, and during that time, they told me to keep in touch with everyone who is a uh, related to Al Qaeda or international jihad here in London and throughout the UK, which I did. Um, that was the plan, anyway, so not to alert anyone that I have uh, left the fold. But also, that was clever on their part. So basically, the infrastructure is there. Should I uh, elect to return to Afghanistan, that it will not be. Uh, seem odd that I disappeared for six months and now here I am knocking on the door of any camp. No, of course not. They made sure I stayed in touch. And during that time, I would also gradually sink into that um, role of debriefing them even about my daily encounters uh, with people here and you know, getting to know the infrastructure of jihad in uh, Londonistan, as we used to call it at that time, you know, and uh, elsewhere in the UK, uh, in places like uh, Sheffield or Leeds or Manchester in particular also, uh, especially with the Libyan community there. So they were you know, fascinated by everything, of course, happening. And remember, in 1998, the counter-terrorism departments uh, or counter-Islamic terrorism departments in both MI5 and MI6 were small. You know, MI5 was focusing still on the IRA, um, and the uh, MI6 was focusing on the fallout uh, from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the nuclear uh, proliferation uh, and the peace process in the Middle East, and that's it. There was hardly that much focus on Islamic terrorism. You know, Bin Laden just basically was just a sideshow. No one knew about 9-11. You know, I, you know there was, it's a pre-9-11 era, and so... Uh, only the f- a few months earlier that the uh, East Africa uh, bombings happened. So I ended up actually being in a situation that was quite unique. Uh, and I was told, hardly ever happened before, that I wasn't just only uh, being a double agent. I actually was educating my handlers on uh, Islamic terrorism, uh, in a sense, because most of them came from the 
either from the uh, IRA office or the Nuclear Prolifer Proliferation Office. Where were you when 9-11 happened? Well, as you know, I returned to Afghanistan at least five times uh, from 1999 until 2001 on behalf of the UK uh, security services. Uh, and during that time, I was able to report to them on several uh, you know, key issues, including the development of uh, you know, uh, undetectable explosives uh, you know, that could be used uh, without wires for suicide vests, where that was uh, hugely important. Um, the development of chemical devices that are easy to construct and deliver. Um, and I was able to inform them about the arrival of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi uh, into Afghanistan coming from uh, prison in Jordan. Um, so by June 2001, just uh, roughly three months before 9-11, I uh, was scheduled to come back to the UK because I was by that time running a cover story, a business. Uh, that The business was my cover story. It's a luxury food business from uh, the north of Pakistan, from the Himalayan side of Pakistan. Uh, uh, pink uh, Himalayan salt, uh, luxury uh, mountain honey from Kashmir. Um, so, uh, you know, so I, this is the excuse I use in order to go and come and go and come. Now, that has its own downside. It meant basically I couldn't be a full-time, you know, high-ranking high ranking member of Al-Qaeda. I was really this mid-level operative, you know, without, you know, access to the top secrets, let's put it this way. So what I saw at that time uh, in uh, Afghanistan was some interesting movement. Uh, the camps are being evacuated and emptied of uh, weapons and laptops and munitions and supplies, and these were driven somewhere else unknown. And I was uh, told by the deputy leader of Al-Qaeda at that time that I should transmit a message to four individuals in the UK that they need to leave uh, their posts in the UK and they need to come with their families to Afghanistan before uh, the end of August. I was uh, also witnessing that uh, people are coming back from different parts of the world, people bringing their families, they started basically to uh, rearrange things. And that's when Abu Hafs told me that if in the future something big is going to happen and the Americans end up here in Afghanistan, do not be tempted to come and join us for the jihad here. Stay where you are. We will, we will get in touch with you. Do not try to come to us. You stay there. So when I arrived back in June, I told my handlers the news, and of course, basically, they already seems to have been aware of other indications that something big is about to happen, but no one knows what it is. And they were worried, of course. And that's a problem. Many people ask me this question. How come you didn't know about 9-11? And I will say to them, half of Al-Qaeda's top leadership did not know about 9-11 until the day is going to happen. So why should I know? That's one. Two. Al-Qaeda, like any organization, consists of different departments. And, you know, I was in the R&D department, you know, which doesn't stand for research and development. It stands for research and destruction. You know, so um, there is a finance department and there is external operation department. Now, if I was in either of the other two departments, finance or uh, ex external operations, I might have detected at least just a thread, just a thread, to disrupt the entire thing. 
How? If I was in the finance department, I might have been asked or tasked to transfer money to one of the hijackers. If that were to happen, then maybe the entire thing would have unraveled. You see, just a small thing. But, you know, to my surprise, there weren't that many spies inside Al-Qaeda, unfortunately. And most of the espionage was done in the, more, in, in the most uncoordinated way possible. Why? So I was spying for the British. Uh, the Americans didn't seem to have any spy inside at all. They were relying mostly on the Jordanians um, and the Egyptians. And throughout the years, uh, you know, I was spying on Al-Qaeda, no less than five Jordanian and Egyptian spies were apprehended and executed. So can you imagine I was in an environment where I can see executions of fellow spies? Let's put it this way. And even I was enlisted at some point um, by uh, one of the uh, camp commanders, one of the camps I was in, to be on the lookout for people who might be suspicious or, you know, uh, exhibiting uh, signs of being spies. So I was like, you know, I mean, laughing inside of me thinking, oh dear, <laughs> you're asking a spy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to look for uh, spies, you know, within our ranks. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these five spies from Egypt and Jordan, you know, if they were not, you know, uncovered, you know, if they were still, uh, their cover was intact before 9-11, they could have disrupted that too. Because I remember one of them was in finance, mm -hmm. but he was caught just by the end of 1999. If he was caught in the end of the year 2000, he could have unraveled that. Just to give you an idea of how difficult you know, it is basically to put spies inside an organization that was so paranoid about having spies within their ranks. That's the first thing. And the second thing that we were living in what we call communication black hole. There were no mobile phones in Afghanistan, there was no way I could pick up a phone and you know, make a phone call to my handlers and say, let's meet. Once I'm inside Afghanistan, I could disappear for a few months and they have no idea if I'm alive or dead until the moment I come out and then I give them a call. And how do I come out? You know, sometimes I will have to, you know, fake illness or so, you know, to be taken to Peshawar or Islamabad or only once if there is an emergency, I break my glasses because there is nowhere in Afghanistan where they, you can have glasses, you can have replacement glasses. So I'd, I go with no replacement glasses. I would smash my glasses by sitting on them accidentally. Well, accidentally, you know, in inverted commas. Um, and then I will say, oh, dear, I, you know, I'm, I, can't, I can't see at all. Like, you know, I mean, so, you know, you have to take me to Islamabad or something like that. Like, you know, so I can, you know, have replacement glasses. Only then I could, you know, shake off my uh, fellow jihadists, like, you know, basically by saying, you know, I'm going for, uh, you know, a long phone call with the family. And then basically I would be able to meet my handlers to tell them the news and the information and everything until the next time I am in the UK safe based on my business cover. Obviously, stopping 9-11 wasn't possible. It could have been under other circumstances, but there are other things that you did to save lives. And what do you think the biggest coup that you managed to stop was in your time? For me, the proudest moment, I think, was the plot to kill American sailors in Bahrain in 2004, New Year's Eve. So it was the New Year's Eve of 2004-2005. Uh, a cell for Al-Qaeda were planning to use uh, bombs and chemical weapons um, to attack nightclubs uh, and bars 
uh, in Bahrain, uh, where the sailors of the U.S. Fifth Fleet were stationed there. So that was one plot I was able to disrupt. The other plot, basically, I was able to report on and report on its progress and then its ultimate uh, failure was the attempt to attack the New York subway with chemical weapons in March of 2003. That was uh, an eye-opening for the security services because they didn't understand how lethal that device is, how easy it is to construct. They even reconstructed the device themselves um, and they tested it to find out that, yes, it is lethal, actually. It could cause a lot of damage and panic, you know, in the, uh, especially if it's placed in a place like in New York, where the decontamination could take weeks, uh, shutting down the, you know, the global financial center there. It could cause, you know, hundreds of billions in terms of loss. So that was something I'm very proud of, to have been able to prevent, in a sense, from, you know, being... Uh, completed, let's put it this way, and coming to fruition, um, disrupting a plot by a cell in Dudley uh, in the UK here, who were stupidly, like, you know, I mean, at the same time, in, insanely uh, trying to manufacture a poison that could kill by touch in order to uh, lace the, uh, you know, the car handles and the door handles uh, of luxury cars and, you know, and, and luxury flats and homes in Mayfair and uh, Kensington and these places, you know, attacking the rich, uh, you know, and uh, basically trying to cause some economic damage. Um, thank God the individuals were arrested on other charges, you know, fraud, financial fraud mostly. Um, but one of them escaped. And when he escaped, actually, uh, you know, he went to Afghanistan to study under the same instructor who taught me uh, bomb making and explosives. Um, and he ended up now being one of the chief master bomb makers for ISIS in Iraq and Syria. His name is Abu Muslim Britani, or as people know him, Hamayon Tarak. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a well-known, uh, you know, expert on explosives for ISIS. Since your identity was revealed in, in 2006, you've been very much a public figure. You are on social media. Obviously, you've published this book with your name attached you've done interviews on tv so we know what you look like people can find out your identity but does that bother you are you not scared or, or worried that there might be people who who want you dead well there were people who wanted me dead for real i mean it was uh, september of 2016 i was going to my nephew's wedding in bahrain when um uh, two uh, members of al-qaeda wanted to um, basically kidnapped me and then uh, murdered me. And so, you know, that more or less brought to sharp focus the fact that it doesn't matter uh, because, um, you know, they want me dead anyway. But the good news is that I'm a target of opportunity, not pursuit. So it's not like, you know, the fatwa on my head, that was which, which, which was issued in 2008 after the uh, publication of the 2006 book by an American journalist about my identity, the fatwas clearly stated that if you have the chance, do it. Um, so it was all about an encounter uh, fatwa rather than basically a pursuit uh, fatwa. Um, the you know the good news in, in many in, in many ways here is that most of my former comrades are either dead or in prison, uh, and there is a new generation who are more worried about. 
uh, achieving you know martyrdom through a blaze of glory you know fighting against the enemy and uh, you know uh, going in a high profile attack uh, you know against symbolic targets like london or paris uh, against uh, you know unfortunately against civilians uh, but you know for them that was an easy thing for them to fi- first of all find me and to keep up with my ever you know constant travel schedule that will take them long time uh, a lot of resources when they could basically just achieve the same uh, objective by killing random people in the street so why would they have to travel long distances and spend a lot of money just to find one person that that's some extent reassuring um and at the same time the risk is always there and if i was you know a member of al-qaeda and a member of the international jihadist movement able to master my fear when i was with them wouldn't it be hypocritical if i wasn't able to master my fear when i was working against them and i'm still to this day working against them yes i do public speeches yes i uh, appear on uh, tv and radio but you know the mission there is to counter their narrative and to educate people about the dangers of their ideology you can't do that while hidden somewhere where people can't hear your voice there is a choice here between living a peaceful life but dull without any purpose seeing the world burn around you and you are not able to do anything about it or basically participating and accepting that there is an element of risk the element of risk was there before even there was any news about a book coming or anything mm-hmm. you know so it's like flogging a dead horse let's put it this way so it's not going to you know dramatically increase the danger to myself the book is incredibly eye opening or certainly i found it to be and the stories are, are quite remarkable and unbelievable and and your story is one that just really should be read i just want to ask you to to finish about the future and if you think we're anywhere near this stopping i wish i could have some good news for you but unfortunately i don't isis might have been defeated in a from a territorial point of view but all the forces who went into isis strongholds uh, failed to find the cash now of course basically after being a a terror operative i became a spy after being a spy i became a banker and so basically for me money is important i mean <laughs> i need to know where the money went um and i've been investigating this actually on behalf of the financial services for a while now where did the cash go and we have a pretty good idea where it went um though how it disappeared into the financial system in turkey unfortunately which means that they still have access to hundreds of millions of dollars of cash they have raised from the sales of oil and artifacts and even in some cases basically from the sale of organs they harvested from the people they executed and killed um so that money will enable them to come back you know when the opportunity arises al-qaeda is still there on top of that we have two and a half million refugees who came from the middle east south asia and north africa and they brought with them untold risks if if you know within their ranks there will be people who means to do harm to europe and even if the vast majority of them don't they will find a europe that is hostile towards them which will make them a breeding ground 
of extremism already. It's going to be a vicious cycle. Therefore, purely from a risk assessment point of view, uh, we are not going to see the phenomenon of terrorism related to Islam going to disappear anytime soon. Amen, thank you for your time today for talking to me and congratulations on getting this book finished and, and published. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me.